Uh, last week we talked about how in this section of Matthew, uh, we're touching on some subjects that kind of cross the line from preaching into what some might call meddling. You know, these are issues in this section that touch down in a very practical way in our daily lives and are sometimes honestly uncomfortable. Uh, last week it was sin and, and forgiveness. Today you can see the theme. We're going to talk about faithfulness and marriage. And along the way, he's going to talk about divorce and, and remarriage. And, and I want to share a couple of things before we jump in. One is that as I share this, I want you to know I come to you not as some cold-hearted scholar just passing on facts. I come as a friend and as a pastor because I know that this gets messy. And I want you all to know wherever you sit today, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Okay, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And every one of us has fallen short of God's ideal in some regard in this matter, myself included. We all need the grace of Jesus, okay? Second thing, I'm not interested in, in getting you locked in on some past decision that you can do nothing about now and walking out of here feeling condemned, okay? What I am interested in doing is hearing the truth that Jesus presents and asking that today, this morning, on a morning where, as he says in his word, his mercies are new every morning, if we would all ask honestly the question, what do you have for me in this, Jesus? What would change in my life going forward, forward, if I took in what you share here? So it's in that spirit of humility that I begin, and I want to ask how many of you, like me, like Carolyn, we've been married 25 years, would admit that your marriage is a work in progress. Amen. 25 years and, and, and we're still working. I think of what an old country preacher once said. He said, you can tie two cats by the tail and, and hang them over a fence. They're united Unity is a different matter. <laughs> I think about the story of a man who went to talk to a friend and he said, I don't know, man, I'm thinking about giving up on my marriage. And, and his friend asked the insightful question, well, what was it that drew you to your wife in the first place? And, and he said her, her straightforwardness and her frankness. So the guy asked, well, what is it that's leading you to consider giving up now? And he said, her, her straightforwardness and her frankness. You know, sometimes the things that draw us to someone can find their way around to being something that, that pushes our buttons. There's also the reality of the fact that we change as we grow, right? I think of the story of the couple on the couch at the end of the night. The, the wife has her head on the husband's lap, and, and he gently removes her glasses. And he says, boy, when I take your glasses off, you look just like that teenage girl that I dated so many years ago. And she said, with my glasses off, you look pretty good too. <laughs> 
Marriage is a work in progress. But what I love about what Jesus does here is he's going to show us God's design, God's heart, God's intent for the wonderful gift of marriage. And I think about that. I think about a story by Max Anders who once went to St. Louis and he didn't have road directions, but he knew he wanted to get to the, the great arch. And he looked up and he saw the great arch and he said, even though I didn't know what roads to turn on because I saw where I needed to get to, I was able to get there. I believe that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's showing us what God wants marriage to be and that'll help us with his help, the help of the Holy Spirit get there. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me. I wanna start in Matthew 19 verse one. As when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, it'd be easy to read past this, but I find it interesting. He was healing them there, and what is he doing? He is restoring their health, right, to God's design. God's intent, the way things were before what? Before sin and its consequences. I think that sheds light on what he's about to do with marriage itself. Verse 2 says, large crowds followed him. He healed them there. Verse 3, Pharisees came up to him. We've seen this before. They tested him by asking. You could translate that word test as tempt. What are they doing? They asking honest questions with a heart to learn? No, they're trying again to trap him. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, one scholar with the last name of Hill says at this time in history, there were many divorces among the Pharisees. It was kind of a, a scandal in Israel. In fact, how many of you have heard of Josephus? Look to him for Jewish history. He himself was a Pharisee and a divorcee, and he wrote that divorce is permitted for any cause whatsoever. Well, it's kind of a, a current thing in the culture, and they're trying to trap him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You know what they were thinking back to, likely, when they say, is it lawful? Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. And it, it goes on. Mentions indecency there. And at this time in history, there was a, an argument going on between different sides about what is this indecency? When is divorce allowed? And when is divorce not allowed? There was a conservative rabbi named Shammai that said that indecency is only sexual immorality. But there was another rabbi who died about 20 years prior to Jesus. He was the grandfather of Gamaliel, who trained Saul of Tarsus. He was more liberal. When he spoke of the indecency that allowed divorce, he included all kinds of things. 
even if she burns your food, you can say bye. If she speaks loud enough in your house that the neighbors hear her, you can divorce her. If she speaks negatively of your parents, husband, in, in front of you, you, you can divorce her. There was even a, a later rabbi, Akiba, in Hillel's school of thought. He focused on the phrase, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, and he, he left out the because he has found some indecency. He said, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, hey, if you find someone that you find more attractive, you're welcome to go ahead and divorce your wife. So they're trying to trap Jesus here. You say, how, how would the trap work? Well, one way is if he can, in his answer, maybe get one side or the other of this crowd, depending on which side they sided with, kind of angry at him. That, that's one way the trap could have worked in their minds. Another way is maybe they're getting him to say something that would get Herod to come after his head, just like he came after John the Baptist. Ooh, if we can get him to say this about divorce, it's going to offend Herod. Or maybe this, this would be the cream of the crop for the Pharisees. If we can somehow get Jesus to contradict Moses in front of these people, then we have him. Well, what was Jesus' answer here? Before we read it in verse 4, I want to point out something. I want you to notice that Jesus blasts way past Shammai and Hillel. He blasts way past even Moses when he received the law on Sinai. All the way back to something else Moses wrote about at the beginning of time. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read? And that could have been an offensive question to guys who thought they had it all down. You missed this part, guys? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female how many genders two and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife what is marriage a man a male holding fast to his wife a female, and the two shall become one flesh, verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. So what's God's design for marriage? Oneness. Think about the wonders of his design here. And not, not merely physical oneness, but a, a spiritual, intellectual, emotional, social oneness together. What, what a beautiful goal. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What is God's intent for the duration of marriage? For life till death do us part. So I want to just start here by saying Jesus clearly defined marriage here. There, there are some who would deny that. 
they would deny that Jesus entered into this culture's debate about what marriage is and isn't. He clearly defined it here. So I would encourage you, if you define marriage differently than Jesus does here, at least admit it. Let's stop pretending that, that Jesus embraces aberrant views of marriage. He set the boundaries clearly here. And what's he doing? He is restoring, just like with the health we talked about earlier, he's restoring their view of marriage to God's design, right? His intent, the way things were before sin and its awful consequences, the design one flesh for life. Those of you who are married, let me ask you a question. When you got married, why'd you get married? Somebody asked some kids that one time why they wanted to get married, and kids are fun. A nine-year-old named Gwen said, when, she got, when I get married, I want to marry someone who's tall and handsome and rich and hates spinach as much as me. <laughs> A 10-year-old named Steve said, I want to marry someone just like my mother, except I hope she doesn't make me clean up my room. I read a story about an old fella at a nursing home who, who found another uh, lady in her 90s as he was, and he sat down with a pastor to talk about marriage, and the, the pastor asked him, hey, why do you want to marry her? Is, is she a good Christian? He said, I don't know. We haven't talked much about that. He said, does she have a nice personality? He said, I don't know her that good. He said, is, he, is she rich? No. He said, well, why do you want to marry her? He said, she can drive at night. <laughs> Those are humorous, right? But I want you to think back to the days when you were looking ahead to marriage, if you're married now, think, what were you looking for when you wanted to get married? And I, I like the way one author got to it. He, he got right to it. He said, were, were you looking for someone to fight with the rest of your life? Probably not. What happens? The enemy creeps in there, right? What were you looking for? And Gary Chapman helps me here. He pours a lot into Christian marriages. He points out that the heart of humankind cries out for unity. It cries out for it. In Genesis 2.18, think about the context of this. Adam is in a perfect garden with everything he needs to eat, to work, etc., and he's got a perfect relationship with God. No, no sin. Wow, and it's in that context that God looks down at Adam and says, it is not good for the man to be alone. So I'll make for him a suitable helper. Genesis 2.18, that can be brought out as the idea of a helper whose face to face, and you remember the story. He took a rib from Adam. I, I recalled recently a little story about that one time. Just fiction here. This is not from the Bible. But Adam says to God, hey, what would it cost me to get someone that thinks exactly the same as I do and agrees with me all the time? And, and God says, that'll cost you an arm and a leg. So, so Adam says, well, what can I get for a rib? 
But really, the rib, the rib has beautiful symbolism. It's side to side, face to face. And where Chapman goes is marriage was God's answer for man's deepest human need. Union of life with another. And my guess is, those of us who are married, that's what you were looking for, right? How many Rocky fans we got in the room? Do you know Rocky has good marriage theology? Remember, he was interested in Adrian, and I think it was Paulie that didn't get the connection. And Paulie said, I don't see it. What's the attraction? And Rocky says, I don't know. Fills gaps, I guess. Paulie says, what's gaps? Rocky says, she's got gaps. I got gaps. Together we fill gaps. He had it right on. It was a oneness he was looking for with her. But the Pharisees get right back to, almost as though they hadn't heard Jesus, right back to the law. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're saying, hey, Deuteronomy 24, right? Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? We got him now, right? What did Jesus say in verse 8? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. The word there is sclerocardian. You can think of sclerosis, hardening, cardian, heart. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. You see what he's saying? It was no command at all. It was never my father's intention. It was only a concession because sin came into the world. What's he telling them? He's saying, yes, my father allows divorce in certain situations, but he never, never celebrates it because it is always the result of sin. And it always tears two that God had put together. That's why Malachi 2.16, we read, I hate divorce says the Lord, the God of Israel. Back to our passage. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, end of verse 8, but from the beginning, he keeps going back there, right? It was not so. Now he's going to give the direct answer they were looking for. He gave them a lot more that they didn't expect first. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery Jesus here allowed divorce and remarriage for the innocent party when their partner is sexually unfaithful Paul, I believe, adds in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're a believer and you have an unbelieving spouse who is not willing to make it work and they leave, you are no longer bound. There are some in Christian realms who would add cases of extreme abuse, extreme neglect. And my recommendation in those cases, because you're probably wondering, this is just my recommendation, 
separate for safety's sake. But personally, I don't see it as clearly here, the divorce. But let me say that humbly, because if we meet somebody who divorced for one of those latter two reasons, do not approach them as a Pharisee laying down your understanding about it. You don't know what, what's gone on under that roof. But wherever we fall on, on that, we can agree on a couple things. Is, is divorce always allowed? No. No. Is it sometimes allowed? Yes. Is divorce always sin? No. Divorce is not always sin. Is it sometimes? Yes. Is divorce always caused by sin? Yes. Does divorce always fall short of God's ideal? Yes. When it's allowed, is, is it sometimes the best choice in a fallen world? I believe so. I believe so. Is it always the best choice when it's allowed? I don't believe so. I, th I think of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So I'd encourage you, if you find yourselves at that crossroads where you have biblically allowed divorce in front of you, don't just automatically pursue it. Seek the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have me do here? And if he leads you, yes, you go ahead and do it. Know that he's allowed it. But if he says, no, you fight for this marriage, you, you fight with all you've got for this marriage, don't pursue divorce, then, then follow him that way. But I think about this whole passage and I think about a larger principle for the Christian life. And I think it applies beyond marriage and divorce. You find yourself at a crossroads in your life and you're facing a decision trying to figure out what to do. I want to encourage you, do not be like the Pharisees and stop at the law. What am I allowed to do here? What can I find? What, what, what am I allowed to do? I believe that does not go far enough. I want to encourage us to be like Jesus and say, what is the Father's deepest desire in this situation where I find myself? What is his dream in this situation? What's his ideal? What would please my Father the most here? I think about that. I think about, imagine you have a father you love, and he passes away, and it was in his will that, that, that you spread his ashes on Mount Everest. Listen, that's, that's, that's quite an undertaking, but guess what? I'm guessing most of you, because you love your father, would say, I will do that because I know it's my father's will. I thought, man, what if we, we took that same approach when we come to crossroads in our lives? What's my father's desire here? Lord, what do you really want? And then with his help, do that. His disciples got just how serious he was being here. They didn't miss it. He came down very conservatively. Verse 10 the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. 
You know, they'd possibly been influenced by that liberal school of Hillel. But I think about it, and you look at it, and it's like, whoa, guys, talk about missing the point, right? Instead of celebrating the, the oneness in marriage that is God's good design, they're like, boy, he just knocked down a bunch of the escape hatches. Better to just stay single. Too late for you, Peter. I think of what William Hendrickson said. Their question should have been, how can a man use this marvelous institution of marriage for the benefit of his wife, himself, his children, to be his fellow men and God's kingdom? He goes on, these men did not as yet fully understand that the spirit of love, service, and sacrifice, the very attitude of their master, must be applied to every relationship of life, also to that of marriage. I think about their focus there, and just to put it in modern-day form, imagine you go to Disneyland with a group of people, and you get to the gate, and... Five out of six of you are getting ready to go hit the attractions, but one of them says, hey, I'm going to go around and find out where all the exits are. So you say, okay. So in the meantime, you go hit a couple rides, and, and you find them six hours later at noon, and you say, what are you doing? And he says, I'm, I'm still looking for all the exits. And you're like, hey, man, do you understand why we're here? Like, aren't you going to enjoy all this? Are, are you going to try out, like, Splash Mountain in a small world with us? He's like... No, I got to find more exits. So later on, you find him as the park closes. He's still looking for the exits, and you say, man, what a wasted day. Think of all you could have enjoyed, enjoyed here. You, you missed the drop tower at Guardians of the Galaxy. You're so focused on the exits, you forgot why we were here. Verse 11, and he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. He doesn't argue that it's a hard saying. But I think some of what he's saying here is, look, not everyone's called to be married. But if you make that choice to be married, make sure you know the terms that come with it and accept it. And if you did make that choice, just remember, at least as far as I know for all of us in this room, no one made you say till death do us part by gunpoint. You chose that. So accept the terms of the Lord. Verse 12, he says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. These two categories didn't have a choice in the matter, right? He speaks of a third category that does have a choice. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I believe that's figurative there. There are some in this world led to remain single and follow God's will as a single person. And for those who are called that way, that is just as noble a calling as marriage. Let me ask you a question. Did he command that of his followers? No. And I believe that's where the Roman Catholic Church has gotten it wrong in enforcing that on their priests. 
fact, you probably heard like me about the, the priest who got to heaven one day and he started crying and, and Peter said, what's wrong? And he said, I just now realized it said celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> it's not required. But if God's leading you that way, know that that is a noble path to serve him. He closes by saying, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And I look around at all the married couples in this room, and I know many of you have received it. But I didn't want to leave today without sharing some practical tools because how many of us would admit in this fallen world, we've got an enemy who works against our marriages, we've got a selfish flesh that works against our marriages, and there are certain things that would tear down the oneness in our relationships. They may seem like small things, but like one man said, most marriages that end don't, don't end because of an adulterous affair. Many marriages die with a whimper. We need to be aware of four things that would attack the oneness. And I take these from a, a wonderful resource called A Lasting Promise written by Christian authors who have spent a lot of time with hurting marriages. They, they discovered that if these four things are prevalent in a marriage, the likelihood of divorce in that marriage goes sky high. As with anything, God can intervene, but they're saying watch out for these four things. I'll give them to you briefly. The first one is escalation. You know what that is. You get in a disagreement and one person says something harsh. You're so stupid. And the next person, kind of like Crocodile Dundee, remember, that's not a knife. This is a knife. I'm going to take it next level and I'm really going to hurt you back. And then it goes up and up and up. Beware of escalating arguments. What's the biblical answer to that? Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath. Be the de-escalator, the soft answer person in those moments. The second one is invalidation. This is just painful put-downs, disrespecting the person, sometimes making them feel like a fool for feeling how they feel. Whether you call your spouse a fool or make them feel like a fool because of how they feel in a moment, I'd listen to the words of Jesus, how seriously he takes this. Matthew 5.22, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He takes that kind of thing very seriously. It may not be a direct name calling. It may be downplaying how they feel at a, a given moment. They're really hurting and you're like, brush it off, suck it up. You know what that's like? It's like Proverbs 15, 22. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart, it's like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. So you say, what's the answer to invalidation? Does it mean you always have to, validation, does it mean you always have to agree with them? No. No, you won't always agree in a healthy marriage, but it means you at least listen and sympathize and try with all you've got to understand where they're coming from because you love them. The third of the four is negative interpretations, always assuming the worst motive. 
always assuming the worst. They, they gave an example of a husband that said, I don't think we're going to be able to fly and see your, your parents this year because money's tight. I, I just don't know if it's going to fit in the budget. And the wife said, you've never liked my parents. I know that's why you don't want to fly to see my parents. Now, listen, if there is a negative motive on the part of someone, that person needs to deal with it. But sometimes we just naturally assume the worst. And, and if that's us, we need to keep in mind Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things. Instead of believing the worst about your spouse, why don't you try believing the best? Like maybe he's being honest about the finances or, or maybe she didn't forget to pull the car in the driveway just to annoy you. Maybe she just really forgot. The last one, withdrawal and avoidance, also called hide and seek, never dealing with serious issues to bring resolution to him, sweeping them under the carpet for another day and another day and another day. And they pointed out that in most couples, the men tend to be the ones that run from that. Why? They say many of the men just want to keep the relationship safe, and that conflict feels very dangerous at the moment. In many relationships, the woman is the pursuer. Why? She wants to stay connected, right? But the question here is how can you meet each other in the middle? Whether it's that way in your marriage or the spouses are flipped, one great tool I've heard is, hey, if you're the pursuit, you got one pursuer and one withdrawer, how about this? Set a time, a good time, when, you're, when it's good for both of you that you're going to talk about the matter. That way the withdrawer knows it's not going to be talked about all the time, and that way the pursuer knows it is going to be talked about, right? What if we grabbed onto what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I think about those kind of things and I think about the importance of faithful love. And I think about the fact that there's a difference between faithful love and marriage and, and being in love. Do you know that? C.S. Lewis spoke to this. He said, being in love is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. No feeling can be relied on to last. In fact, it would be highly undesirable if that feeling did last. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years, he said. What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep? Your friendships. But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense is not merely a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion 
that started it. But I think about faithful love. I want to close with something that may at first seem unexpected. We're going to go back to the character of God himself. I'm going to begin by asking you a question. How would you define faithful? Go ahead, shout it out. Dedicated? Loyal? Yes. In fact, that's where Merriam-Webster went. Steadfast in affection or allegiance, loyal. I think about that faithfulness, and I think about a family man. Let me, let me explain. Next picture, Jim. See that first couple? They're dating, right? And I'm going to talk about the word consistent here. You can almost see that dating couple, like looking at that cell phone, like, oh, schmoozy poopsy. That, uh, that selfie of, of you is so beautiful. I encourage young women at the school here when I talked about this. You want to make sure you're looking for a guy who's consistent, right? A guy who's not going to be Dr. Jekyll while you're dating, but Mr. Hyde. So really get to know him. You want someone who's consistent, you want someone who keeps his word. That's the second one. What, what do couples say at the altar? Till death do us part? Ladies, you want a man that means that, right? And finally, you want a guy that completes what he starts. You've all heard the old adage, it's, it's easy to make a baby. It takes commitment to be a daddy, to follow that through all the way to the end. And I thought about how th that's a great metaphor for God because of how many times he refers to himself as a husband or father of his people. And I want to go through it real briefly. And you say, why are you going to talk about this? Because God's design for marriage does not come out of a vacuum. His design for faithful love comes out of his very character. Now, I want to show you briefly how God's consistent. Moses wanted to know who God was. Right? Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And many believe in the Hebrew. What that means is who I am today, I've always been, and I always will be. So you say, who is that? Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's who God's always been. That's who he will always be. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. And, of course, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13.8, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent. Second one, he keeps his word. He keeps his word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In light of what's going on with Israel right now, this one's extra special. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And then lastly, you say, where do I get those promises today? In Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Last but not least, God always completes what he starts. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it.
How about Hebrews 7? You ever wonder what Jesus is up to today? He's, he's interceding for believers to the Father. And look what it says in Hebrews 7. He's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And last but not least, what a promise for the believer. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why is God's design for marriage include faithful love? It reflects who he is. Ephesians 5, 2, he tells us to be imitators of God as dear children. But you don't got to do it alone. Many have pointed out how awesome it is that Jesus did one of his best miracles at a wedding. He showed up there and they're out of wine. What'd he do? He took water, something very ordinary, and turned it into something extraordinary. And I believe he could do the same thing in marriages if we will invite him in. Say, Jesus, you be the center. What does Ecclesiastes say? A cord of two strands will not be quickly broken. A cord of three strands will not be quickly broken. You, your spouse, and Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, I thank you so much that Jesus did not shy away from the issues that touched down in real life. I thank you for the grace that you displayed at the cross for every one of us in some area. When we look at this area as fallen short, thank you for the blood of Jesus. If there's anything you need to confess today, confess it. Lay it down. Come to him for grace and mercy. And Father, I pray that you'd move in this room by your spirit. If there's a step that we need to take in our lives, whether we haven't been married yet, we, we are married now, or we're after marriage, how would your spirit lead today in light of the words of Jesus Christ? Lead us, Lord. I thank you for the beautiful design and gift of marriage, and I pray that you'd help us steward the marriages we have for your kingdom. I pray likewise for those called to singleness that you would bless their ministry greatly. Thank you for the diversity in the body. Lord, as we prepare to take our offering today, I pray that you'd help us use it as an expression of your body for your glory and the spreading of your gospel and your truth in a world that needs you. In Jesus' name, amen.